You are now listening to the September 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saint. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles. Today, we will continue to learn about the Apostle Nathaniel. When speaking to non-believers about Christ, we try to talk to them, recognizing their current state of mind. Suppose Nathaniel was living with no hope for his future. Then his friend Philip could have said, Hey, Nathaniel. I met Jesus, who has wonderful plans for your life. If Nathaniel was living with an illness, Philip could have said, Hey, Nathaniel, I met Jesus, who can heal you and get rid of your illness. And if Nathaniel was having difficulties in his family life, Philip could have said, Hey, Nathaniel, I met Jesus, who can heal your family and bring you hope. But Philip said none of these. He simply told Nathanael this, I met the Messiah whom Moses and the prophets wrote about in the Bible. Knowing Nathanael, Philip was sure that he would be interested if he was told about the Messiah whom Moses and the prophets wrote about in the Bible. Seeing how Philip approached Nathanael tells us that he knew Nathanael was well informed of the Old Testament and their prophecies and that Nathanael was longing for the Messiah that had been prophesied. It seems that both Philip and Nathanael studied the law and prophets and were well acquainted with the biblical prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus confirmed this when he finally met him. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus knew before he met Nathanael that he was under a fig tree. The Israelites at the time usually had fig trees near their houses. The houses in Israel around the first century usually had just one small room. The cooking was done inside the house and the fire had to be burning all the time in the house, even during the hot summer days. That meant the houses were, in general, always full of smoke and were hot and suffocating. To get relief from the smoke and heat, the Israelites planted fig trees near their houses and went there to cool off under the shade. Unlike the fig trees in the United States or Korea that tend to be small and scrawny, Fig trees in Israel are big and luscious with lots of branches and huge leaves. Fig trees in Israel usually grow to about 13 to 16 feet high. With rough and strong trunks, the branches spread out to around 26 to 32 feet wide. A single tree can provide widespread and comfortable shade for the resident to find refuge from the smoke and heat. The state of Arizona, where I live, is a desert climate. The sun shines all the time. In the summer, when the sun beats down on the land, it can get pretty hot. As such, 
the temperature drops off considerably in the shade. For instance, when you park the car, the difference between parking with versus without shade is huge. I would surmise Israel was the same way. With such intense heat from the sun, hanging out under a fig tree offered relief, and one could relax a bit like being on a vacation. You found your cool spot, and the tree might even provide delicious fruit. What else do you think the Jewish people at that time did when they gathered under the fig tree? They prayed or meditated on verses from Scripture. It is easy to imagine how Nathaniel must have prayed and meditated on God's Word under a fig tree. In fact, Jesus confirms that he saw Nathaniel when he was under a fig tree. We might even be able to make a little conjecture as to which verses from Scripture Nathaniel might have been meditating on. Biblical scholars posit that he was meditating on Genesis chapter 28, which describes how Jacob slept, resting his head on a stone as a pillow. Consider what Jesus says about this in verse 51. Here's the passage from John chapter 1, verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This verse, in fact, is very similar to the verse that appears in Genesis chapter 28, verse 12. Let's read it together. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. It seems Jesus even saw which verse Nathanael was reading from, Jesus spoke to Nathanael, building on what he was meditating on when he was under the fig tree. Jesus was telling him, Nathanael, the ladder that you meditated on under the fig tree that connected the heaven and the earth, that refers to me. As son of man, I am the ladder that connects God and people. I am the mediator. I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. Can you imagine how surprised Nathanael had to have been that Jesus knew he was reading Scripture under the tree? Not only that, the very scene he was meditating on was about this person standing right in front of him. He was privileged to meet the Messiah who connected the heaven and earth. Later, he became a witness of this Messiah when he saw how Jesus was crucified and was then resurrected. According to a survey conducted by a Christian Post, a Christian publication in the U.S., about 70% of the born-again Christians do not agree with the biblical notion that Jesus is the only way to God. The article that reported this finding predicted that the survey participants said they considered themselves as born-again Christians. It showed how deeply the so-called born-again Christians are steeped in the pluralism that accepts non-Christian ideologies under the banner of promoting diversity. Even more, in some of today's ultra-liberal churches, the message of Jesus Christ is not the only way to God has been preached publicly for some time now, and quite a number of people 
have started to accept that it does not have to be through Jesus to go to God. They think they can reach God by living honestly or faithfully in whatever religion they may choose. So, when we tell people Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, many people respond by retorting that Christians are narrow-minded and self-righteous. They show their discomfort by reasoning why Christians do not accept diversity in this postmodern generation and challenging why Christians insist on the absolute truth and make a self-righteous claim that Jesus is the only way. Beloved listeners, please imagine this. Suppose a building caught on fire. The building is filled with smoke, and you are coughing desperately and cannot see anything. You seem disoriented and can't tell which way it is to the exit that will take you outside. Then a firefighter comes in, smashing the door, and he tells you in a loud voice, Come this way, and you will live. At that point, could anyone say, You are so selfish and narrow-minded. Why do you insist on only one way out? You make me very uncomfortable and argue with him. In the building that is burning up, the firefighter's way is the only way and the truth to life. Who is our Jesus? He is the only one who did not commit sin while on earth. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus walked on water, calmed the storm, and commanded nature. Jesus resurrected the dead. Jesus died on the cross in our stead. Jesus was resurrected three days after he was crucified. And then that very Jesus Christ now sits on the right side of God since he ascended to heaven. This is what Jesus Christ said in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Nathanael longed for the Messiah while meditating on Scripture underneath the fig tree. He was searching for the everlasting truth for which he would give his life, and he finally met Jesus the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life to bridge heaven and earth. According to the biblical historians, Nathanael was martyred by a horrific execution. It was considered the most horrible execution, even compared to how the other disciples of Jesus were martyred. The details of his execution are depicted in Michelangelo's painting, The Last Judgment, on the wall of the Sistine Chapel. On the ceiling is Michelangelo's painting, The Creation of Adam, and off on the sidewall is The Last Judgment. On this painting, Jesus is standing in the center, and to his left is a bald and bearded man holding a man's hide. This scene depicts how Nathanael was martyred through an execution by flaying. Nathanael showed a prejudice against the town Jesus came from and challenged Philip, Are you sure that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah? But once he met Jesus and became his disciple, 
He kept his faith to the point of being subject to a horrible death. Nathanael was able to act out his faith because he believed that Jesus was the only ladder of salvation that connected heaven and earth. To Nathanael, he was the way, the truth, and the life. Beloved listeners, to us also, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. I hope you will hold on to the truth of the gospel ever firmly in this world where false messages abound. Let us live by steadfastly walking with the Lord. This concludes today's episode of the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Defending the Gospel. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We are looking at one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You've heard me say that. This is the most important But it seems like the book of Acts is full of those moments that are critical in the life of the church because the church is a baby. It's growing up. And you know how it is when you're being raised certain times of your life phases. It's so important that crucial things happen and they happen right. And so it's this way in the life of of the church. It's not a baby church anymore. It's beginning to mature, but issues come up. And so as I'm looking at Acts 15, it's long, we'll cover most of it. I've divided into seven parts, and this is how I'm thinking. Uh, the first part is the division. There's, there's going to be a division we're going to talk about in the church. The first is the division. Then there's going to be a discussion. Then there's going to be a debate. Then there is going to be a decision. Then there'll be some directives, a delivery, and delight. How do you like that? They all start with D. It must be inspired by God, right? Luke 1 here records for us a great division that came about in the church. Oh, when's the last time you talked about circumcision, huh? How many of you guys are circumcised? No, don't raise your hand. (laughs) Oh, that would be so funny because somebody would raise their hand, you know, and don't, 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 don't. Uh, No, no, don't, don't, don't do that. But uh, I got your attention, didn't I? (laughs) Chapter 15 of the book of Acts begins with a serious theological problem that was causing division in the church in Antioch. And what the dividing the church was the insistence by Jewish Christians, some Jewish Christians, that Gentile Christians be circumcised. A group of men who were claiming to be coming from the Jerusalem church, the mother church, so to speak, in Jerusalem. They seemed to have some kind of authority. They came to the church in Antioch, and they were teaching this doctrine. Oh, look at what they were teaching. Acts 15, verse 1. Now, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? Saved. This is a matter of salvation, they're saying. Now, here's a spoiler. There's going to be a whole lot of discussion about the right of circumcision, which isn't your usual conversation starter, is it? Uh, some of you are thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the week I invited my friend. There's first exposure. But don't worry, I promise this will be painless. To understand the importance of the Jewish rite of circumcision, we have to go back like 3,900 years, almost 4,000 years ago, when God called Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and he promised him that he would have this mighty nation, descendants that would outnumber the stars of the sky. 
He promised them that. And he says, Abraham, you believe me? Abraham said, yes. And God said that being circumcised would be the sign of having faith in that promise. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to just step aside for a second. But Abraham, the New Testament says, he was justified by faith just like we are. You know, we talk about receiving Christ and he justifies us, right? And God looks at us just as if we'd never sinned, justified. Abraham, the New Testament, was justified by faith. And other people, well, they say, what? But he didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about the Messiah. And there's this whole discussion that goes on, you guys. And But kind of a yeah, wait, yes, he did. We don't really have to argue or debate about it because of what Jesus said in John 8, verse 56. Jesus said to some Jewish religious leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. So did Abraham know about the Messiah coming? Yes. And Jesus seemed to indicate he even knew it would be him, maybe by some revelation that God gave to him. So now, going back, every, quote, child of Abraham, unquote, every Jewish baby boy is circumcised eight days after they're born. You tracking with me so far? I want you to understand why this was such a big debate in the early church. Today we're thinking, oh, good grief. You know, what is the big deal here when we talk about this? I'm going to let Bible scholar Craig S. Keener help me out here. He says, circumcision was one of Judaism's most important practices, central to Jewish identity. Other covenants had different signs, like the bow in the sky, but circumcision placed the mark of the covenant in one's very flesh. Its centrality in regular Jewish life may be exemplified in the gathering of guests on the nights between a boy's birth and his circumcision on the eighth day. One pre-Christian work opined that the failure of some Jews to circumcise their children would bring wrath on all Israel for apostasy. It was believed that circumcision by some was so important that God's wrath would come upon Israel if one baby boy wasn't circumcised. The well-being of the church in Antioch would be determined by the decision of whether the circumcision was necessary for Gentile Christians or not. Because Antioch was the church that was sending out missionaries to the Gentile world. So the church in Antioch were these Judaizers, we call them, people who say you had to be Jews first in order to be saved, where they were coming, they were upsetting them and say, well, wait, don't send out any more missionaries until we know what we're supposed to be doing. That makes sense, doesn't it? So the debate became so divisive that the leadership of the church in Antioch wisely wisely, I'm going to say one more time, wisely decided that the issue should be brought to leadership in the Jerusalem church. Let them make the final determination. Paul and Barnabas wanted to take what they believed uh, and the reasons why they didn't think Gentile Christians should be, have to be circumcised and present their side to the apostles who were in Jerusalem And yet they all would submit to what the apostles said. Now, you understand the apostles had 
absolute authority when it came to teaching authority. Jesus said that he gave them the power to bind and to loose. You hear that? Remember that? That meant to permit or forbid something. So if the apostles would permit this, yes, you must be circumcised and be saved, okay. But if they forbade this, then that was the decision as well. So look at verses two through four. Verses two through four. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that word in Greek, dissensions, means actually a riot, an outbreak. There was a church. It wasn't like a quiet little meeting. I mean, people were upset. After they had no uh, small amount of uh, dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through uh, churches in Phoenicia and in Samaria, and they told them in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and this brought great joy to all the brothers. The Greek there means continuing joy. They were just like, we cannot get over how exciting it is uh, for what God has done for them. Uh, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and he said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised. Okay. The importance of this church conference or council cannot be overstated, gang. It is one of the most important events because this conference settles the question forever of whether salvation is obtained by grace through faith alone or it's by grace through faith plus works, all right? It determines why we're sitting here and why there isn't a separation between Jews and Greeks or why we're not all insecure about being saved because we're just still not wondering if we've done enough to be saved by God. Truth's very important, right? Because what you think, what you believe, you become. And truth in doctrine, right doctrine, tells us about God. And we've got to have right views about God. And we've got to know what the right way to salvation is, correct? Yes. So throughout history, this was the first church council that was ever held. We call it the Jerusalem Council. Throughout history, there have been many other major conferences in church history, the councils that have been held that have decided major important issues among Christians. Uh, the leaders, the elders, the bishops of churches would come together in these councils and these conferences and problems would be sent before them and there would be a debate. And thankfully, God's, uh, the truth was preserved through these councils. If it wasn't for them, we would not, again, be sitting here believing what we do. These church councils hammered out the basic beliefs that every Christian has to know in order to be saved. There are some essentials that you must believe to be a Christian. Amen? Bottom line, and when we recite, you have the Apostles' Creed or something like that, those are those essentials. But they weren't always known. And so church councils met 
to hammer that stuff out. Believe it or not, the first, I think it's the first three church councils was all about whether or not Jesus was God. Peter brings up a prophecy that declared Gentiles would be brought in. And then I said, there's a division, there's a discussion, there's a debate. There's a division, <laughs> there's discussion, debate, and now there's the decision. Verse 19, therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So there's the decision. It's not to be required. And the apostles approved it. They gave it to James, the leader of this church, and they said, this is it. We forbid that to be taught. So it's my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But here, here are some things that we want to direct them to do. So here are the directives. No, they don't have to be circumcised to be saved, but we want them to live a certain way. And so they give four directives to them. Before we talk about those, I just want you to, you'll notice what they don't say. They don't say, we want them to keep the Sabbath. They don't say, we want them to stay kosher. They don't say, we want them to keep the feast of Israel. They don't say that. And some people think you need to do that today. No, they said, this is what Gentile believers need to do, talking to them in the first century. First of all, you read what he says, verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So four things. First of all, and we'll go back to this, they abstained from eating anything that had to do with idolatry. I'm going to come back to this, but this could ruin their lives. They were to abstain from sexual immorality, from uh, fornication, sex before marriage, sex, uh, extramarital sex, from, from gay sex, you know, all the, you know, all of those categories Pornia, pornography, that's the word pornia. They abstain from pornia. We understand that. We understand that still today. Then they were to not eat any meat that had been strangled. The animal had been strangled because that was inhumane to the animal and it offended their Jews. And they were not to eat blood. The meat that they ate had to have the blood drained out of it because that's what the Jews did, and they did not want them to offend their Jewish brothers. Now you'll say, ah, come on, let them get over it. You know, come on, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give up eating my steak rare for the sake of their problem. Listen, guys, guys, listen. Part of being a Christian is that we care about people who are a little bit weaker than us and we curtail our liberty for their sake. This is totally not 
an American thing to do. We're so individualistic. Well, this is good for me, and I don't care what's good for you. I'm doing this for me. We forget, no, in the church, we are community, amen? We're community, and I got to take care of you. If, if what I do is offending you, I'm not going to offend you. For sure, I'm not going to do it in front of you. I'm not going to offend you. So abstain from food uh, so that had been uh, um, offered to idols. That's what the idolatry is really speaking about. Not only to not worship idols, which was obvious, but all the meat they ate and all their socializing was around food that had been sacrificed to idols in the Roman and Greek world. So if you are a wealthy businessman and you are at another wealthy businessman's party or gathering, there would be a wine offering to one of the gods and then you would eat together and you would eat the meat that had come from the temple of one of these gods. It had been offered to those gods and now you would be eating that and James is saying our decision is you cannot do that. Which meant, what if you were a member of a, of a guild or a, kind of like a, a union? And part of being part of that union or guild is that there would be ceremonies where you would have to eat meat offered to idols and you couldn't do it. What does that mean? You're out of work and no one will hire you. What does it mean if you're a slave and, you know, the only food you get and the only meat you get now and then is the leftovers from what was sacrificed to an idol? It meant you're going to be a vegetarian unless you all could go to a kosher Jewish section of town and buy some kosher meat where the blood, the animal hadn't been sacrificed to idols. Otherwise, you were, you were just X'd out of normal society. This cost them. I'm telling you, this could ruin and did. Ruin sounds like it was a bad thing, like it shouldn't have happened, but, but this literally devastated many of their lives, this decree. They were called to sacrifice. Is there anything on the line for you because of your faith in Jesus? You can eat any meat you want, any time you want. But is there anything on the line for you because of your faith in Jesus, because you obey his teachings? Would, would you draw a line in social media and you say, you know, I'm, I don't care, I'm not doing this. Is there a line that you draw about where you go? Would you draw a line about what is modest for you to wear? I know modest, <laughs> modesty, <laughs> what is that? We never talk about modesty. Modesty for men and women, it's, it's still a part of living our Christian life. So we're not causing people to stumble, come on. It's a no-brainer. What about what you listen to or the games you're playing or what you watch? 
Would it be sacrificial for you maybe? Would you lose if you spoke up to your faith where you work, for your faith where you work? Would you be shamed because you don't go along with liberal opinions? What about if you're in a situation where they want you to use different pronouns than you want to use for people? and you refuse to, you'll lose your job. Would you put that on the line for your faith in Jesus? Or would you find some compromise? See, there was no compromising for these Gentiles. Are you afraid to offend the world? Will you stand up for the rights of the unborn? You know, it was a big thing 20 years ago, and I've wondered the last two decades, what happened to this issue? And thankfully, now by the grace of God, the issue is back in front of us again, and the church can make a difference like we should have before. These babies need to be spared, and I'm just thanking God that, and and don't be afraid to say what you believe. We, we say it in love, we say it with grace, but we don't have to be quiet. The other side always wants to have the floor, and God forbid you silent them. We also have the right to make our faith and our, our beliefs and our truth known. What about giving? I mean, do you give to God? Really? I mean, five bucks, five bucks. Come, that's a tip. <laughs> Come on, it is a tip. God thinks, you know, this five, 10, 15, 20, 20 bucks this, this month, you know, yeah, I'm giving. You, okay. Theoretically, you're giving. What does God think about it? You're not giving sacrificially. You're, you're not even missing a, two Starbucks in or something. What, what are you giving? I mean, this is an area, okay, it's not meat sacrificed to idols, no. But it's supporting God's work and his plan to take the gospel out into the world. What about coming to church? Okay, you've gone from speaking about circumcision to now church attendance (laughs) and giving. I'm going to talk about coming to church right now. And I want you to open your Bibles and go over to Hebrews chapter 10. And, you know, if you're home watching and you, you can't be here, I understand completely. But I also understand completely that some of us, some of you have gotten out of the habit and it's just cool to get up whenever you want, to not have to get the kids ready, to not have to get dressed, to be cash, to not drive in. 
and watch, you hear the worship, yeah, man, and then you turn the service off whenever it ends or whenever I, I say I'm going to talk about you know, it's necessary to come to church. And, okay, the service was great. <laughs> you know I love you. I told you I love you already, right? You know I loved you. Why would I say these things if I want to be the 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 popular guy. I mean, come on, circumcision, that's weird. <laughs> to explain that was important, though, wasn't it? And these, the, the problem in the church, that's important. But, but this is really important. COVID was a disaster. Never in the history of the world has been anything like a worldwide uh, uh, devastation like COVID. Never in the history, and never in the history of the church has there ever been hap- anything happening like COVID. I mean, never in the history of the world did the church not meet together on, on Easter Sunday. Never happened in the history of the church. But it happened, what, two years ago? And so out of, out of necessity... And with thankful hearts, we were able to watch services and be blessed. And it was a godsend. It was from the Lord. But now, gang, it's over. Okay? It's over. It's really, really. And I'm not going to debate, you know, stuff. I'm just, let me read. And now, Holy Spirit, do, do your work. Hebrews 10, verse 25. Not neglecting, 25. Oh, by the way, this is a command, not a suggestion. Uh, if you don't read Greek, and because of that, we're not getting the command. This is not a, and, and maybe, or this would be good, or softening it like we often do when we teach. This is like a command. Not, not forsaking, neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You gotten in that habit? But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the day? The Lord, yeah, you're right, you're right. The, the Lord's return. Listen to what the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it. Not staying away from our meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not staying away from our meetings, as some habitually do. The message puts it this way. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging and helping out, not avoiding worship together, as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. God is saying you are to be gathering with believers and fellowshipping together because how can you do verse verse 24 not being here? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How can you do that behind your screen? How can you do that 
When you're saying, no, I'm going to play the game. We're going to go to the game instead of being in church. How can you do that? How can you fulfill what God's telling you to do? We can't, can we? It's not, it just can't happen. So I don't know, is this a sacrifice to come back? Is it like the sacrifice these Gentiles are making that ruined their lives? No, you know it's not like that. We've just gotten into the habit. Every other week, once a month, it's funny how you think, oh yeah, I've gone to church. Oh, oh no, it was, oh, it was a month ago. And we think of that as regular. Or every other. Or, you know, it's just not on the calendar. Put God on your calendar, okay? Put him on your calendar. Your kids need, they need to be around other kids who love Jesus. They need to be taught the word of God. You say, okay, okay, I got it, all right? (laughs) I know you do. I love you. So the letter was sent to the Gentile believers, and basically what we just read was what they had read to them. It was delivered to them, verse 30 says, and the Gentile Christians, verse 31, were delighted at what they read. Acts 15, 31, they were delighted, absolutely. And you think, really? You're just being told to do something that could turn your world upside down, but you're delighted. You're delighted. Let's don't look at the Lord's commands as duties, but as delights, okay? I delight to do your will, O God, David said. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for communicating to us, for explaining to us truth and preserving truth for us through godly men and women who lived a long, long, long time ago. Thank you that we are enjoying a salvation that is free from any works that we do because we... (laughs) just terrible workers. Thank you, Lord, that we stand right in your eyes because of your son, Jesus Christ, and and all the good that he's done. And as we we realize your word and and where there there might be something that um, might be on the line because of our faith in your son, Give us the courage to take a stand there and not to wimp out. Give us courage and boldness and realize that you were shamed. You were shamed on the cross. And we might be shamed like you, but that wasn't the end of the story. We pray for the debates that are 
in our world right now? Satan trying to turn upside the fam- upside down the family and definitions of humanity. Lord, this is crazy. We need understand. We need we need super courage, super wisdom to know how to move forward. You have the strategy. We want to hear it from you, see it from you, and to be just one of those pieces that fulfill that piece of your plan. In Jesus' name.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. No, if you read it in its original language, in your faith talks about how things are supplied. It covers every single one. Every single one. This list is in the context of faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ as his word is working in us. And I believe we'll see that. So you could translate it this way. Applying all diligence in the context of faith, supply. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay? That's really the context. So you want to keep that in mind. Otherwise, you might get distracted and try to do stuff apart from abiding and trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay? But we'll see where to diligently do that in the context of faith. Okay, so as we look at our passage, notice we are commanded, commanded. If you're a believer, God commands us to do stuff. And if you love him, you go, okay, praise the Lord. If you're hostile, rebellious, then you're, I don't want to do it. Right? But he commands us. Now for this very reason, verse 5, also, applying all diligence, when it's connected, in your faith, connected, Here's our main verb, supply, and then he goes through a list of things. Moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, it's connected, knowledge. And in your knowledge, it's connected, self-control. And in your self-control, it's connected, perseverance. And in your perseverance, it's connected, godliness. And in your godliness, it's connected, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, Love. This is the part that God calls us to do, as we're going to see. And it's done in the context of a real relationship with Jesus. It is the manifestation of a real relationship where you are trusting in him. And we're going to see if these qualities are yours and increasing, then you're neither unfruitful or not useful. You are fruitful and useful, okay? So with this in mind, notice first of all, now for this very reason in our passage, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. This is an interesting word, because I think of supply. How do I supply something? Later on, we're going to see, he says, if you do these things. I can understand that. But why does he use this word supply? Supply. You need to ask those questions when you're studying the Word of God. The term Translated supply is a difficult term to understand. And I struggle with it greatly as I was just praying, out, Lord, what do you mean? What are you intending here? What is your purpose? It comes from the Greek word epikorego. Epi meaning upon, korego speaking of to supply or furnish. It came originally korego from, that's where we get our word choreograph, where in the old plays, Greek plays, the head guy would supply everything for them. And that's where we got this word. So it means supply, and then look the word upon. It means add to or add your supply in a sense. It's kind of a weird way to think of it. Supply upon. And some people will say adding to. There's some versions, okay? But we get the idea here as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in his promises, relying on him, we're going to do something. And we're going to be doing all these things, not just a few of them. In some manner, at some level, at some level, that can increase or not be there, okay? At some level, 
we're to be doing something. You see, faith, true faith, actually works. True faith actually works. You see, as we trust the Lord, he produces in us the willingness and the desire to, by his power and strength, step out and obey his word. So as we trust, we are to add something to that. It is the action that comes on our part as we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong, just as Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing, right? I recognize that. But in him, we can do what he calls us to do, right? True, genuine faith will produce, as we will see, obedience to the word of God by the one who is believing, okay? Thus, God's part and our part in the context of him providing everything. Don't get that wrong. But we're not robots. He actually brings about changes in our lives. He brings about obedience. You see, saving faith, true, genuine saving faith will work. You see, we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. But when we're saved, we're changed, and it will work, it will manifest. Turn to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2, right nearby. James is going to make the case that a lot of people say they have faith. But is the faith they are speaking of a genuine faith that actually saved them? A saving faith. That's the key here. That's the key. James, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What use is it, my brethren... If a man says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? Is that saving faith? If I say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but there is no evidence in my life of obedience to the Lord, there is nothing working out in my life, do I really have saving faith? That's the argument he's saying. That's the argument. And he says here, If a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, now this is very Jewish. He's pointing to Jews within there that probably weren't saved, who someone is in need. They're in need of food and clothing, and this person who says they have faith says, go, be warmed and filled. You know, they're very spiritual response, but yet they're not seeing the need. They don't have love. It's not working out. A brother or sister is with need of clothing without clothing or in need of daily food and one of you says go in peace be warm and filled and yet you do not give what is necessary for their body what use is that even so faith if it has no works is dead being by itself but someone may say you have faith i have works show me your faith without works i will show you my faith by my works you believe god is one you do well the demons also believe and shudder but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without works is useless He's saying basically your type of faith isn't a saving faith and it's useless. Genuine faith works out. And he gives the illustration of Abraham then and also Rahab the harlot, okay? You see, when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we trust in him, he gives us his spirit. He enables us and gives us the desire to obey. And he has created works for us to walk into, to actually do in the context of a relationship. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. God saved you by his grace through faith. It's all him, nothing from you, right? Now, he awakened our consciences to our sinfulness through the word of God. He pierced the division, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And he calls upon us to not harden our hearts, but to respond and repent, right? And by his grace, we responded to the gospel, right? Okay? But notice what he says in verse 10, after speaking of being saved. He says, for, he's explaining, 
We are his workmanship. The term could be translated poem. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's going to be a change in your life. Another passage that is extremely helpful, turn to Philippians chapter 2. It initially seems to be a paradox, a paradox, a spiritual paradox. But see, we need to be careful we don't take one doctrine to the exclusion of other doctrines. We need to see it rightly in its context and understand it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Now notice what he says. Paul says this to the Philippians. So then, my beloved, it's believers, just as you have always what? Obeyed. It's obedience, that's the issue. Obedience, okay? Not only in my presence, but not much more in my absence. Here's the command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obey. That's working it out. Obeying the word of God. Learning to obey all that Jesus did and said. Learning to obey by his power and strength. And notice what he says. But guess what? It's God that's doing it in us. For it is God who is at work in you. Now he does it by his spirit and his word, by the way. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation because God is at work in you. Obey the Lord God because he's working through you. It's not on my own and my own separate wisdom or abilities. From the context of relying on Christ and in our passage, in your faith, supply. In your faith, supply. It's very important. So now with this in mind, notice we are to add or supply in the context of faith, we're to do something, we're to bring about something as we're going to see. But notice there's another qualifier here, back in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, another qualifier, which is very important. He says, now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, supply this stuff, all the list, the whole list. In your faith, he says, applying all diligence. The term applying is translated in some translations, make or giving. It speaks of bringing every effort to bear. Applying all diligence. Not a little diligence, but all diligence. This term translated diligence is an interesting word. It came from the word to mean haste or speed. When Mary ran, she ran hastily. It came to mean speedily. And it came to speak of effort or zeal or eagerness to actually do something. Eagerness, effort, zeal, diligence. Diligence is the opposite of laziness or lagging behind. It is, as we see, Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul contrasts that very thing, diligence with lagging behind. I'll read this for you. Romans 12.1, not lagging behind in diligence, okay? And then in Hebrews chapter 6, turn there for a second, Hebrews chapter 6, we see this word being contrasted with being sluggish, sluggish. I'll tell you, there's not a lot of diligence in the Christian life these days. Not a lot of diligence, as we will see, to supply these things in our walk in the context of faith. To actually step out in obedience to the word in these areas on a daily basis. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Great encouragement for true believers who are suffering, by the way, and hopefully for you too. 
For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name. Those are actions in Christ, okay? He says, in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. It's real-time service of Christ, okay? Serving his body. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence. There's our word. So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That you may not be what? Sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those who were diligent in their faith, and they inherited what God had promised. You see, in our faith, we are to supply the list of things said here. All of them, it's all together, as we're going to see. And we are to do that in the context of applying all diligence. But we live in a society where diligence seems to be an odd word. There's not many people who are diligent in what they do. We are called within all diligence to supply these things. And folks, we do not grow in our relationship with Christ by osmosis. We don't sit and just read the word and just grow, 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 grow. There's a manifestation of that as we're going to see. It is the word working in our hearts that produces his character in our actions. And if that's not happening, the word isn't interacting with your heart. That's not happening. Okay? Look at our passage again. We're going to see we are to make every effort to do some things, to add them to our lives. We are to apply all diligence in the spending energy in the context of faith to accomplish these things. Look at our passage, verse 5, back in Peter 1. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply Moral excellence. And then you could say in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. That is implied the entire time. It's a imperative command. And in your knowledge, supply self-control. And in your self-control, supply perseverance. And your perseverance, supply godness. And your godness, supply brotherly kindness. And your brotherly kindness, supply love. All of this in the context of faith, do it diligently. Make every effort. You see, these are real-time qualities which we'll look at a moment, that are characteristics of a life that is yielded to Christ in obedience in the context of faith. They're real-time qualities. And if you're truly walking with him, you are going to have these characteristics on some level. And they are to increase, because we're all not there yet, right? Look down at verse 8. For if these qualities, what he just said, are yours, if you possess them, all of them, not quality three and quality four, all the qualities, and he says, and are increasing. They render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then you're not useless or unfruitful in your real relationship with Jesus. Okay? He's talking about the things he said, that we are to furnish supply in the context of faith and all diligence. Okay, in the context that God supplies everything we need through relationship with Jesus, you see? See how it's kind of paradoxical, but it's the reality is we trust him. We step out in faith and we obey his word. We take action in Christ. We supply these things. Now notice, later on, he uses the word practice. Look down at verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities, that means doesn't have them, is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his form of purification from sins. That's the least of the worst possibilities. But then notice what he says Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling. Make certain you're really saved, by the way. Make certain you're really saved about his calling and choosing for you. For as long as you what? Practice these things. Now, that's the word do. 
That's the word do. As long as you do these things, all of them, not a few of them, you will never stumble. For in this way, the interest to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. As long as you do these things. Our passage speaks about practical obedience that is manifest in characteristics that are identifiable. Practical obedience that is manifest in characteristics that are identified. If these things are yours, you can identify it. So we can know, are we growing in the Lord? Do we know the Lord? Do we know the Lord? Have we forgotten truth concerning Jesus Christ on a practical basis? Is our relationship not what we think it is? Our passage speaks of supplying, adding to here. Add to these things. Work it out by faith. You see, the Apostle Paul understood this paradox. He stepped out in his own energy, but yet not his own energy. He obeyed in his flesh, but not by his flesh. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. You know, I can say I trust the Lord all I want, but if I don't come and obey Him and preach like I'm supposed to and trust Him in the process, if I don't step out in action in obedience to the Lord, right? A little example. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecute the church of God. Worst thing you can do, persecute the church, by the way. He said he was the chief of sinners because he messed with the church, right? But God was gracious, right? He saved him in the midst of that. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain or empty. But what does he say? I labored. That's labor. That's expending energy, diligence. He's doing things even more than all of them. Yet notice this, not I but the grace of God with me. It was Christ in me enabling me to labor, to do what he had called me to do. But he says, I labored. I labored. What about Colossians chapter 1, verse 28? I'll read this for you. And we proclaim him, Paul says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose, I labor, I striving, I gizomai, I agonize. And then he says, according to the power which works mightily within me, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. Christ, by his strength, through his spirit, by his word, enables us to obey. So we're to do. So we're to do. These should be a manifestation of characteristics of a true believer. All of them, by the way. All of them. If these are yours and increasing, as we're going to see. Now, we're going to look at this in a minute. We're going to look at each one, but for time's sake, we're not going to be able to go into each one in depth today. Obviously, now you know why we only do two verses. But we'll review it a little bit next week, but we can get the understanding of it by just taking a peek at it. If we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus through the Word, we're going to be obeying Him, and we're going to be supplying diligently these things to our everyday lives. They're going to be a part of who we are. They're going to be a part of who we are. And if they are yours... And increasing, you are neither useless or unfruitful in your relationship with Jesus, which applies you can be useless and unfruitful, by the way. So with that in mind, let's take a look at these things. What are these things that are to be increasing? And note their order and interdependence. We're going to see seven things. And as I mentioned earlier, faith is not one of them. It's grammatically not one of them. Faith is grammatically in the context of all of them. All right? 
and also the context of God already providing everything we need for life and godliness. We've got to see that. It's not just simply saying, I'm going to go out and do this stuff. It's a manifestation of the life of Christ in a true believer trusting him as he obeys the word of God in circumstances in his life. These characteristics will come out, as we're going to see. They're going to be added to, they're going to be supplied or furnished. So notice what he says. He says, now for this very reason also, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, applying all diligence, make sure it's in the context of complete diligence, in your faith, now here we go, supply moral excellence. Very interesting that this is the first one. It raises a lot of questions. Why wouldn't knowledge be the first one? Why wouldn't knowledge be the first and then moral excellence? Doesn't make sense. I know the word enables us to be a certain way, right? Enables us to be like Christ. What's the reasoning for this? We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.